Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Scientific Science Podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries and constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com. And this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gill at epen.info. Before we start, I want to mention that I was recently introduced to a company, Magic Mind, who sent me samples of their product that boosts energy and focus. The ingredients are all natural, including organic matcha green tea, lime's mane mushrooms, cordyceps, choline, ashwagandha, turmeric, and vitamin C and D. The product is well formulated and nicely packaged, a small bottle for a single dose that can be consumed in a few seconds. I found the product very useful to keep me focused, reduce stress, elevate mood, enhance cognition, and generally keep a healthy immune system. I found it particularly useful when I'm tired. There are no controlled clinical trials here, but the company is working on it so that consumers can have excellent scientific data as well. I would recommend you try it and let the company know of your feedback. They love to hear from their customers. The product is called Magic Mind and is available in most online retail stores. You get one month for free when you're subscribing for three months at www.magicmind.com slash Jan Scientific Sense. That is J-A-N Scientific Sense. And with the code EAPEN20, E-A-P-E-N 20. It's an extra 20% off, which gets you a total of 75% off. This only lasts until the end of January. So I, I, I would strongly recommend you try. My guest today is Professor Laura Belkamp, who's Professor of Finance and Economics at Columbia University's Graduate School of Business. Her research focuses on how individuals, investors, and firms get their information, how that information affects the decisions they make, and how those decisions affect the macroeconomy and asset prices. Her recent work examines the data economy and the value of data as an asset. Welcome, Laura. Thank you. 
Yeah, so we want to talk about your book, um, but I also picked up uh, a working paper, NBER working, working paper, uh, with one of your colleagues, in which you say in a data economy, transactions of goods and services generate information, which is stored, traded, and depreciates. Uh, how are the economics of the economy different from traditional production and innovation economic, e economies, you ask? How do these differences matter for measurement of GDP, firm values, depreciation rates, welfare, and externalities here? So this is a, a topic of great interest to me, uh, Laura. I don't know much about it, but um, so depreciation of data value is not something that I have really thought about. And so do you want to start there to, you know, so how do you think about depreciation of the value of data? Sure. So most economic data is used for prediction. And oftentimes we're trying to predict uh, features of a world that are changing. So I'm trying to predict uh, what will consumers want tomorrow? What sorts of goods, what color clothing will be fashionable? What, um, you know, wh where will demand be strongest and so forth? These, these features of the economy change over time. And because they change over time, information about what people want today is not as relevant as information uh, tomorrow about what they will want tomorrow. So because the world is changing, the information is losing relevance gradually over time. And that's the source of the depreciation. Yeah, that makes a lot of intuitive sense. So I was when I was thinking about data, Laura, uh, I don't know if this is the right way to think about it. So there's transaction data, which is, which is sort of in the consumer world. And there is what I would call sort of knowledge data, um, which is a little different, right? So, you know, I can go back and read a paper from, you know, by Maxwell, <laughs> you know, 100 years ago, and I might learn something from it. That's also data, right? So yeah, do you see a difference between you know sort of consumer consumer based data and you know um, knowledge information? Absolutely. So my work really focuses on predictive data. So that's not the knowledge kind of data. Of course, knowledge can be digitized. Patents can be digitized. Academic papers are digitized. So in some sense, that's data, but that's not really what the data economy is about. The data economy is a hot topic today because of the new data technologies that we have, because of machine learning algorithms or artificial intelligence. These at their heart are prediction algorithms. And so what we're really interested in is not all digitized information, but really predictive data. Yeah, so, so data use for, as you say in the paper, uh, forecasting and predictions. And um, if you can forecast better, if you can predict better, that is value for firms. And so the, the, the battle has shifted from <laughs> sort of the traditional economy where we make nuts, bolts, and automobiles to how you use data, right? That is, that's a transition that we're going through. Absolutely. I mean, obviously, we still need things. Nuts and bolts are still useful yeah. in the modern economy. But the truth is that, that even the nuts and bolts factory could be much more profitable if they produce exactly the right kinds of nuts and send them to exactly the right kinds of stores and get them into the hands of people who will value them highly. 
So it's not that the goods production economy is gone. Services are obviously still valuable. We still need to eat. We, we still use things, but we've, we can unlock much more value out of the goods that we do produce if we can use data to match those goods with, with just the right customers. Yeah, so let me push on this, uh, Laura. So with, uh, with robotics and um, continuous manufacturing, you know, um, things that are, that are happening, do you think the nuts and bolts business will remain in the future? Okay, well, I, there there's sort of two questions there. Um, yeah. Will there continue to be physical goods like nuts and bolts produced? Yes. Absolutely, right? I mean, we we will still need places to live and some sorts of vehicles to move us around and all kinds of things, right? But I think what you're getting at with the robotics piece of it is, will there be human beings involved yeah. in producing those goods? That's a different question. Um, yes, but I think the human beings might have a very different role. So... They might be working with more robotics. They might be fixing the robots. They might be double checking to make sure the robots are doing what we think the robots were supposed to be programmed to do. So um, I don't think we'll eliminate labor. I mean, the, the end of labor has been predicted many times <laughs> over throughout the centuries. And, you know, hey, we're, we're still here at work and most people are. Um, but I think it will take a different form and it will require different skills. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really interesting. So there's a Fiat manufacturing plant. Uh, I don't know exactly where it is, in, uh, maybe in Milan uh, or someplace like that. There are only five people in the plant um, and it's manufacturing automobiles. So these five people are you know, basically walking around seeing if something is going wrong, <laughs> you know, with the, with the robotic manufacturing process. So I think we are moving toward um, eliminating humans uh, from these sort of repetitive processes. I mean, humans never found these things very interesting anyway. You know, if we just right. did it, you know, because we have to make a living. But now we have alternative technologies that could basically replace them. Uh, you don't see that happening very soon. I think there will be fewer and fewer people involved in the manufacturing sector. Absolutely. Uh, will there be zero people ever involved in the manufacturing sector? No. Uh, will there be the end of labor as we know it? No. I think we'll find other jobs for people to do, right? In the, oh, yeah. in the early 20th century, when the end of labor was, was you know, predicted because of the Industrial Revolution, right? I mean, that was an awfully strong argument. We had, we had <laughs> motors now, right, to replace... Yeah. Most people were doing physical labor, and and that was no longer really necessary. Um, we couldn't imagine the job of a Starbucks barista or mm. a Uber driver or uh, any one of a number of jobs. Um, you know, men, men, mainly service sector jobs that we have today. So I think people will still want human contact in some form or another, and that might be packaged with goods or services. Uh, and we'll we'll find different ways for humans to perform important roles in the modern economy. Yeah, so th this is this is not in your research, but I want to get your perspective on this. So there are some lot of policy questions around it. You know, suppose you take it to the extreme, you say you don't need humans anymore, and we'll get back to your book in a minute. Uh, 
so that you know, suppose you know we have minimum guaranteed wages. You know, suppose we say humans just go do whatever you want to do uh, because we are machines to manufacture do whatever humans want them to do. Um, I strongly believe we are we are tending toward that. So there, there are huge sort of policy questions here, right? So, so what, you know, how do you take care of humans and what are they going to do question? Mm -hmm. I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know the yeah. answer to that. Um, I, I do firmly believe that people find meaning in jobs. And even if those jobs are simply educating other people so that they feel more enlightened, you know, that that may be, you know, the kind of jobs or or caring for people in their old age and providing them companionship, even if a robot could do the strictly medical tasks and, you know, deliver pills and injections and perform surgeries and so forth. I think human beings will find meaning in in the services that they provide to others and and therefore and, and they will find meaning in others providing those services. So I, I think some form of labor in the economy will will continue. Will remain, yeah. So so let's get get to your book. So the the book uh, hasn't published. It's not published yet, right? That's right. It's forthcoming with Princeton University Press, and it's due to be out in the fall. And and what's the name of the book? The Data Economy: Tools and Applications. And this is the Data Economy. With this is yeah. co I should mention this is co-authored with Isaac Fowley, who's at uh, the University of Pompeo Fabra. Yeah, so you know, I read the sort of the first chapter of this, Laura, and I found it really, really interesting. So, um, I don't know where to start. I mean, uh, you know, a lot of people are uh, data and new oil, all that stuff we have heard last 10, 15 years is sort of interesting concept. Um, a lot of people are worried about, you know, as we as we just discussed, losing their jobs um, because the machines are taking over. We have uh, monopoly questions here, um, and as you mentioned here, larger firms have returns to scale on on data, so larger firms get bigger and bigger, and they can hire more lawyers. <laughs> so the search company um, has tens of thousands of lawyers on their staff and the the um, antitrust lawsuit is pushed off uh, to 2026, I believe. So uh, we have a structural question here that I mean that you, you don't talk about that in, in explicit terms, but um, larger firms are getting more powerful. They started off with good initial conditions actually. They started off as monopolies and they're getting worse so the reason this is happening is that the in a traditional economy, let's go back to thinking about the manufacturing economy, making nuts and bolts. If you wanted to make twice as many nuts and bolts, you had to build a second factory, right? Yeah. And you could have one firm have those two factories, but you could pretty much just as well have two firms, each with their own nuts and bolts factory. But now with data, it's not the same to have two firms that each have their own data set, because if you can combine them, both firms can make use of all of the available data, right? So the difference is 
if you had these two nuts and bolts factories, I can't use both nuts and bolts factories to make my nuts and bolts. And you use both of them to make your nuts and bolts both at the same time. Those factories are rival goods. They, they can only produce one set of stuff at a time. But with a data set, I can copy my data and you can go analyze the data and I can go analyze exactly the same data at exactly the same time and we can both get benefit out of it. So this is what we call non-rivalry. And non-rivalry creates benefits from scale because now, whereas the nuts and bolts factory, if we united, if we merged two of them, we'd kind of have twice as much as we had before, no more, no less. It doesn't really create value. If we merge data firms, it creates value because all the pieces of the new merged firm can use everybody's data that, you know, of the entities that can be merged. So they can all be more productive. And so you kind of want to see bigger firms because they're going to be more efficient. I, I don't want three different search engines, each of which performs a third as well as the current Google. That would be awful. That would be frustrating, right? So we want at some level big firms with big data sets because they'll deliver us the most efficient outcomes. The problem is that big firms come with some economic costs. They come with an ability to extract surplus from, from consumers. So the big firms aren't just a problem. They're also a benefit and they're an opportunity and they're a source of, uh, of productivity. So the trick is how do we extract that good piece of it and lose the harmful piece of it. Yeah, so this is not in your research. I just want to get your perspective. So suppose I say the large search company is a utility. They're providing search as a utility, and I'm going to regulate that as an electric power plant. Do you think that's a good policy? Uh, we could. The issue will be how to do it and still create some incentives for innovation. Yeah. Because oftentimes regulation that gives them some fixed amount of benefit then shuts down the incentives to to regulate or to to innovate and to improve. Um, so I think there is some aspect of that that's appealing, but it certainly could go wrong. It's a slippery slope. So. It's almost like there are two different companies there, right? So one is providing a utility and the other is innovating, quantum computers, generalized artificial intelligence, self-driving cars, all sorts of things. And so it almost seems to me that it's sort of two different companies. I mean, the utility company should be providing search um, like a utility in some ways, right? I mean, and I haven't thought through this, but I'm just putting it to you to, to react to it. The problem is that there's still a lot of innovation going on in search, right? If this yeah. were a, a technology that was 100 years old, and then we said, okay, this is old school. You're just, you're not, um, this isn't a changing landscape. You're just exploiting consumers. Let's regulate you. That's one thing. But this is still a pretty new technology. This is still evolving. They're still innovating. And so one then wants to be more careful than you would with, say, you know, an uh, oil company or an electricity company. Um, but the, the issues are the same, right? That, that we, we don't want five different sets of electric wires running through our, our cities and towns. We, 
we want one electric utility, we want one set of infrastructure, but we want to create it some way for them not to to extract all the surplus from us. Yeah, so in some sense, it's a timing issue in the sense that we just got here. Maybe we just got here 10 years ago. So we need, would you say we need more data to really understand how these companies are organized and, you know, um, how the economy should be structured in the future? We need more data, but we also need more structured thinking. Um, yeah. All the data in the world can't really explain to me what's going on and why it's happening. Um, yeah. You know, one of the challenges we face now is that the, the typical metrics of competition don't really apply. So the way economists have traditionally thought about how competitive is an industry or is somebody a monopolist and exploiting their market power would be to look at markups. Well, markups are what is the price that we're selling a good or service at divided by its marginal cost, the, the cost of producing one more unit of this good or service. Well, if you think about that for most digital services, the marginal cost is just about zero. Yeah. There's an algorithm there, and if I do one more search, it's really not that costly, which makes the markup nearly infinite. <laughs> right? And furthermore, a lot of times the price is zero as well. Right? Google is not explicitly charging me anything to do search. So what do I make of zero over zero? Right? So there is, you know, obviously there, there are lots of mathematics about dividing zero by zero, but that's not really the question. The question is, how should we be measuring these things? And data doesn't tell me how should I measure something. It just gives me a lot of measures, but we need really, you know, theory and models and understanding to yeah. help us figure out how we ought to use the data that we have. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a good point. So I'm not a big regulatory guy. I'm just thinking that there must be there might be a, a different law for data based regulation, right? It you know none of the stuff that we put together before uh, work anymore. It's a different world. And as you say in in, the, in your book and in your papers, um, data has. I mean, you can think of data in a in a many different ways. So, you know, I was thinking, Laura, that there's some network effects on data. I mean, we already talked about the scale issues. There's also network effects, meaning if I take data from three different buckets, I have better ways to use that data as opposed to one bucket. So the, the depth and the breadth of the data um, have some implications for companies' decisions, right? Um, absolutely. So I, I think one of the interesting questions is not just how has data changed the size of firms, but how has it changed the scope of firms? How do we think about data from different buckets and goods from different sorts of markets or industries? And is that a source of market power or is that efficient or is that changing? The, the evidence seems to be that firms are changing their scope over time. And my hypothesis is that that probably has to do with data and learning about a customer base and, and that your knowledge from producing some goods becomes informative about producing goods that have some similarities or that might have a similar customer base, even if the good itself is very different. Um, and so we might be seeing changes along that dimension as well. 
Yeah, so so I, I don't know if your research includes this, Laura. So, you know, UN's projections for world population um, sort of hitting a peak was 2100, like just five years ago. Now it's like 2060. Um, so we might hit a peak at nearly about 9 billion people and then rapidly decline from there. So in a consumption economy, <laughs> that has a lot of implications, right? So we always thought economies are going to grow, people are going to grow. We've never been in a situation that people are going to sort of diminish. And so what does that imply for, so so I'm, I'm thinking of, you talk about Amazon and Google and all those people. If there's a cap to consumption, that the business models don't work anymore. Uh, it's it all based on the idea that consumption is sort of infant. Well, we could have people consuming more valuable goods and services, ones they value more, even if there are fewer people doing it. Yeah. That's not really a challenge to, to growth. But it, it does suggest that, it, you know, it points to one of many reasons why Measures like GDP are not the right way to, to think about the economic objective. It really should be the well-being of the average consumer or, you know, we maybe you want to put more weight on the least well-off or, or some sort of metric like that. So if we, if we have some sort of, so we know GDP per capita of the 200 countries. And if you have some way to measure the information or data created, do we see uh, a correlation there in some way? Is there any study like that? That's very difficult to to yeah. get at right now. And in fact, I it's possible that that relationship could be negative. And the reason is because the data economy has created this whole sector of free, of, I'll put that in sort of air quotes, um, yeah. goods and services, right? Where we're getting all kinds of apps and searches and social network uh, facilities uh, at zero price. Now, those are not really zero price because we are exchanging our data for, for those services, but because they have a zero monetary price, they're not counted in GDP. And furthermore, that's probably just the tip of the iceberg as far as undercounting goes, because any firm that values data, even if it sells stuff that's not free, it gets money for the things it sells, it's going to want to do more of those transactions to generate more data because it values that data. And how do you get more transactions? Well, you either have to improve your product or lower your price, which in economic terms, improving your product at the same price is kind of equivalent to selling it more cheaply. So that suggests that there are discounts on lots of goods <clears throat> because of the value of data being transacted. So both free goods and discounted goods are being undervalued in the way we're measuring economic activity. And the larger the data economy gets and the more valuable data becomes, the more we're mismeasuring, the more we're undercounting the mm. value of economic activity. Yeah, it's interesting. So suppose I create an island X and that only creates software. Um, I might have low GDP there, uh, in some sense, right? So, I mean, we have islands like this now in the world where most of the output is information. Mm -hmm. And if I go out and, you know, again, 
not to use the nuts and bolts analogy too much, but if I if I if I look at tangible assets, um, manufactured assets, and things like that, they don't produce any of that. They just produce information. Right, right. So this is a firm that will have a high market value, but if you look at its books, you're going to say, why why would anybody <laughs> value this firm? It doesn't seem to have any assets, right? And and that puzzle is we see that coming out of market values and book values for a large category of firms, and, and that gap is widening. Yeah, so, so one of the things you talk about, Laura, is sort of the valuation of data. And, um, you know, I was in a pharmaceutical company a long time ago, and we value intellectual property. And, uh, you know, so, so we use sort of stochastic simulation dynamic programming to, to look at, um, so there's a lot of uncertainty, obviously, in, in intellectual property. And so data is also fairly uncertain in terms of at least its utility, right? So what, what is sort of our current thinking, how to value data? That's an interesting question. So you can take data and backtest it and say, if I'd had this data in the past, here's how much more profitable I would have been. And that's one way to put a price on data but maybe the future is different from the past. Mm -hmm. And really that's a, that's a problem that comes up with any kind of empirical work you ever do, right? Is that we're always estimating information gathered in the past. And we're hoping that whatever regression coefficients or covariances we estimate are also valid going forward. So that's a very broad criticism to a wide <laughs> body of work that goes far beyond the data economy, but it also applies to the data economy. It's probably even more suspect in the circumstance, because technology is so new and it's so it's rapidly evolving, and so the value you got out of something in the past may not be, you know, the same as as what you'll extract from it um, going forward. I mean, furthermore, there's this question when you talk about valuing data, you might be thinking about buying a data set, mm. and if I buy a data set, I don't really know what the data will. Because if I knew what the data would be, I wouldn't have to buy it because I'd already have the data, right? So there's something really fundamental about um, buying data that makes it hard to value. And so, you know, there are some people thinking about um, ways of wrestling with this problem uh, of how do I try to figure out what the information contents of something are without actually revealing the, the information. And so people in computer science think about this. And, you know, a simple way of thinking about it could be you could submit a hypothesis yeah. and somebody could tell you, here's what the, you know, R squared or the, the P value would be on that, you know, hypothesis without telling you what the answer is, right? Mm. Here's how precise the answer. Here's how precisely this data could answer that question. But I'm not going to tell you what the answer is until you buy the data, right? And yeah. I think we're going to need new mechanisms like this for transacting in data because, you know, with a good, I could pick it up, I could try it on, I could hold it, I could, you know, play with the gadget for a little bit, I could do things to try to figure out how I might value it. But with data, that's fundamentally difficult. Yeah, but there's also a sort of sequential decision making question here, right? So suppose I get data X, and if I use it or not, next year I'm going to get data X prime, and the year after, I'm going to get data X double prime. And so if I don't use X, 
the value of the sequential arriving data is a lot lower, right? And so there's a sort of a sequential decision-making question here. You know, is the, is the user who has the data using the data, um, it's sort of a dynamic programming way, meaning is he or she is thinking about the future decisions or is it just, you know, this guy is going to buy my heater on Amazon and that's mm -hmm. about it. Um, I think it's more of the latter than the former. I, th I think sequential decision-making has really kicked into this data question. That's my hypothesis. I think people who are selling data are starting to think about this and we're seeing difference. There is a fundamental difference between selling you a data set, just a transaction, and then yeah. we're done. And let me sell you a subscription to yeah. a sequence of data that will be updated. Um, some of the work that I do with uh, Ernest Liu and Song Ma looks at the, the differences in the business, these two business models and actually finds that most firms will get much more value out of doing the subscription kind of data sale. Um, they'll extract more market power, you know, fact, yeah. or they'll, they'll get more out of, out of their customers, um, but they'll also have a, a stronger incentive to invest in quality data with a subscription uh, type of business model than, than the one-off transaction. Yeah, that's a lot of sense. So I also saw a paper, um, Laura, from you about sort of financial data. How do you value financial data? Um, and, um, you know, I've done, I've done some work in hedge funds and, you know, that type of stuff. So I'm very interested in this. So what is, what is your perspective on this? Is, is I mean, financial data is fairly commoditized. I mean, I can go to yahoo.finance.com or finance.yahoo.com and get whatever I want to get about that particular stock. But is there information in the financial markets? I mean, if you believe uh, markets are efficient, there's nothing you can do anyway. <laughs> and so, so is that a useful concept? Well, when we're thinking about financial data, we're not really thinking about those basic statistics that you'd look up on Yahoo Finance. We have in mind more <laughs> something like, you know, satellite imagery of the number of cars in the store's parking lots. Or, I see. Okay. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, uh, some way of processing some online textual back and forth, you know, some Twitter feed or, or something like some new sentiment uh, way of gauging it. And you know, it's it's publicly available data, so you're allowed to trade on it. But there are people who have particular ways of processing that data that make it more useful for predicting the returns of firms. I, the market doesn't incorporate all of this perfectly because not everybody is purchasing that data, right? I mean, the the idea of of market efficiency that all information is incorporated in the market presumes that everybody knows the information, and yes, it's public information in a sense, but you can't really process all the public information. So if it's available to you, but you don't process it, you don't you don't stick it in your data set and use it in your forecast making, you effectively don't know it. And if you don't know it, it's not really truly public. So I, I don't think, you know, the, the idea of market efficiency is a is an interesting um, cons concept to, to yeah. think about, but it's not practical reality. There are people who make decisions based on information that others don't know in any functional sense. Um, so you you can absolutely extract value out of that. 
Yeah, I'm completely biased about Slora, so I just throw it out here. So, yeah, it's either that everybody knows about it, or one entity with infinite resources knows about it. Either way, you will get market efficiency. No, not necessarily, because the entity with infinite resources probably will move the price when they start to buy that infinite <laughs> amount that they're. No, I don't know the mechanics of it. <laughs> yes, so it, you know, in reality, the, the exactly the mechanics of markets make it so that even large players would not act completely uh, to incorporate all the information in the market, because if they did, they would reveal it to everybody else, and they reveal it to everybody else. It's not worth anything to them. So. Why would I trade completely on my information to just throw away its value? Yeah, I mean, it's a big market. Um, financial advisors in the US uh, manage about $105 trillion today. And I always argued they had absolutely no value <laughs> to their clients. Um, because you can, you know, Whatever we've been teaching in academics arena, you get just get a you know sort of a, a well diversified ETF. You you get a bond and stock um, allocation, get SPY or something, and then you get a reasonably well diversified bond portfolio. That's it. I mean, and they just leave it there. You know, so why why are all these people getting all this data actually doing um, to their clients? I wonder. Most of them are providing value, but a few of them seem to be, right? So for yeah. most people, actually, absolutely, go buy your diversified fund. Don't mess around with this. Um, and in fact, it can't be that everybody who goes and looks at data is providing value because we can't all outperform the market, right? Market is the average. Somebody's got to be below average. If somebody is above average, somebody has to be below average. So the best you can do is just you know, go diversify and hit your average and don't mess around with it. Um, but there are people out there who are probably a little bit better, a little bit smarter, mm. a little bit faster, have a little bit more access to data, uh, have maybe better algorithms for processing the data that they have that do seem to make some excess returns over a, a period of time that's, you know, that's not trivial. Yeah, so this is the dimension that you don't talk about your table. So a little bit faster. So information, the use of information a, a bit faster as alpha in it. Mm -hmm. it. It's not the content of information, it's just that it got to you a little bit faster than the rest of them. So so we can we can think about it as the financial markets, but in the sort of the operating markets. Do you think there's a speed issue there too? I mean, is there? Uh, I, I haven't really thought about it. You know, so I, I don't know what you mean by a speed issue. So in Wall Street, if you can get the data, you know, one microseconds before somebody else trades, you can make some alpha from it. Of course. But is is Amazon and all the people who try to use sort of operating data or consumer data, is there a speed? Thing there too? No, there are two different ways that you can okay. make alpha, you can make profit, right? One is just getting the same information other people would get, but getting it a little faster, right? We, we've all heard lots about that. Um, but you could also just have more insight. Uh, <laughs> you could have a better forecast of long run profitability and select the right investments that are 
that are going to do a little bit better than, than the things you, you didn't choose. Now, you mentioned Amazon. I don't think Amazon is using most of their data. They, they may have a finance arm by now. I, I don't really know, but, <laughs> but they're not, that's not primarily what they're doing right there. No, no, I mean, they're operating data, you know, they're full care, you know, so X right. goes in and looks at something and they come back and say, hey, you want to buy this thing. Is there a speed issue there as well, I'm thinking? I don't think that's as much of a speed issue. I think that's more of just getting it right choosing the goods that are likely to be more profitable because more more people will demand them. And if you're too, too slow, then the demand that's yeah. there today won't be there tomorrow. But we're not talking about microseconds. We're talking about, you know, weeks or months or years. Yeah, I mean, you, there's also, you know, um, there are people who are fans of Amazon, so they're always going to go there and look at it. So there's a cohort of customers that uh, there's this percentage of them are shopping around. Percentage of them that just go to Amazon. I actually just go to Amazon. I'm not a big fan of Amazon. <laughs> um, and so, so they, they can actually look at uh, segmenting the customers in some way and say, you know, these guys are going to be here all the time and I'm just going to show them um, with a bit of, you know, two cents more <laughs> than everybody else. I think that's what that's what's going on, right, in some sense. It's not clear that they're actually charging different prices for the same goods. Yeah. That seems not to be happening. And I, they could do that with the data they have. And I think a lot of people are afraid of that. I think the reason that platforms like Amazon and, and most major retailers don't do that is they're pretty worried about regulators coming down on them like a ton of bricks if they start to price discriminate in that way. Now, what they might do is show you different products and say, yeah. you don't seem to, to shop around a whole lot. <laughs> Let me show you the expensive version of that product and, and put the cheaper ones maybe further down in the in the search result. So it's still there and you could go look for it. That's not that different from how a supermarket puts the high priced goods kind of right at eye level and the yeah. discounted stuff down by your feet. So that if you're in a rush, you're going to pick up all the most expensive products. Yeah, I'm not sure this is such a new game, but maybe they have a little bit better data to figure out, you know, who are who are the people that you know should get one versus another. But you're essentially deciding that your time has value, and I think you're sounds like you're willing to just pay a little bit more. You know, if you shopped around, you could probably get a lower price, but you're busy, and I think that's a rational decision. And I I think that you know if firms want to, you know, give me a faster service or, or good, um, you know, in times when I'm busy and charge more from that, then okay. I mean, that's a, you know, I can always opt out of that by, by going and searching instead. I think a lot of these, these kinds of issues that people have where they feel exploited or because maybe that, that transaction that we're talking about isn't made as explicit as it could be. Right. I think there's a lot of discussion of firms, you know, stealing our data or, you know, they're they're giving us different uh, outcomes or something because we're not told up front. Here's how the system works. And we might be better off if they said, here's a price. Uh, if you would like pure data privacy and we will never use any information from this transaction, we won't sell it to anybody. We will purge it immediately after. But that's gonna have a higher price. Hmm. Now, if you would like to allow us to use your data in any way we see fit, here's another price and you can choose. And I think 
some people might get all upset because they want the lower price and their data <laughs> privacy. But I think most of us are going to look at that and and say, well, okay, I you know I have a choice. If I don't like the higher price, I can share my data. If I really feel strongly about data privacy, that's that's the price I I have to pay for it. And then then we can start having reasonable discussions about what the value of this data really is and whether that's you know a fair price being set. And we we could see providers start to compete on you know what are the price margins for privacy protected transactions and and so forth. But I think just making a lot of this kind of barter that is going on more explicit yeah. might help us to feel more comfortable with it and help to promote competition in that area. Yeah, so this is the lemon juice stand cartoon. So so for the general public, um, can you explain? So when you go to a website and you say this is completely free <laughs> for you, it's not quite completely free, right? Of course. So most websites will use the data. They'll they'll use your IP address. They'll take note of what kind of device you're using, what time of day, maybe your geolocation. If you've entered in your name and address and credit card number to purchase something, um, you know they'll be careful with your credit card information, of course. But you know who you are and where. You know they'll they'll try to put together a picture of you and and what your characteristics are. They might sell that to third parties. Um, you know, that may be okay because maybe I'm willing, you know, I said, well, this is a service I really want and I understand that mm. they're going to use my data in that way, but I I really value search services, for example. Um, and so, you know, for the value of being able to use Google, sure, I'll let them see everything I search for. Um, but it would be it would be useful if we made that explicit, you know, maybe Google could also offer a service where they don't use any of your data and put a price on it. And I might be appalled at how expensive it is, but then at least I'd understand that's implicitly how much I'm being paid. Because I think there are a lot of these implicit payments. We are we are exchanging data. We're this is a barter trade, right? In the yeah. old old-fashioned economic sense. You know, people used to barter goods for, you know, in a agri agrarian societies, we're kind of back to barter. We're we're trading without the use of money, data for for digital services. Um, so so it's not being stolen, but I'm not sure the price we're getting is is a great one either. Hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah, so, so I want to finish up, Laura. Um, this is not in your research, but this is relevant. So we have elections coming up. Uh, the next election is going to be very much a data-driven <laughs> election. Uh, last time, something like 40,000 people that were fitted to a Michigan football stadium uh, made the made the difference uh, in, in five states or so. Um, so if I am either either candidates guy, I'll just go look for the 40,000 people. I mean, I can I can actually get their data and then I, I just feed them. Um, as they call fake news <laughs> for the next nine months. And I know what the election's result is going to be. So data is, in this context, is not necessarily a good thing, is it? Data enables a lot. Uh, it enables higher efficiency in a lot of arenas, some of them good and some of them bad. Yeah. Right. 
it's I like to think of it as it's it's sort of like, you know, cars get us around faster. Mm. They also help us rob banks more efficiently if we were so inclined to do that. Right. But but they also help us do a lot of useful things. Um, and so data here is sort of like you're, you're describing the, the scenario where data is being used to, to, say, rob the bank or, you know, steal the election. And, yeah. and absolutely, it can be used for a, a nefarious purpose and make that nefarious purpose much more effective than it would be without the data. I think we want to focus on the nefarious purpose and not the predictive data, yeah. right? Because that would be kind of like banning cars to prevent bank robberies. Yeah, yeah exactly. So it's, um, yeah, so I'm sort of rewinding, not rewinding, but going forward in five years from now, um, we have artificial intelligence now. We couldn't actually tell videos or news pieces that come through the, you know, come through the channels whether they're true or not, uh, because we have gotten so good at that, so so really good at that. So we are slowly moving into some sort of an artificial world driven by data, <laughs> uh, fundamentally by data. What will that do to humans in the future, I wondered? So I, I want to distinguish between predictive data says you yeah. are likely to want to do this. You you might be an independent swing voter or something like that. And misinformation. Misinformation is, is a big problem. It's a threat to democracy. It's going to have different technological solutions. We're going to need ways of verifying, of creating trust, um, you know, different sorts of intermediaries, maybe like what the role newspapers served in the past. They would fact check things, right? And we mm -hmm. And so we we trusted that the things that, that we saw in print and, and major newspapers were, you know, I won't say unbiased because everybody has their biases, but they were factually correct. And we've lost that, we've disintermediated them. Yeah. And that's we've in the process, we've lost the verification role that, that they used to play. That's a very different issue from people accumulating data that could be used to predict who's who and what their characteristics are and, and what they might like to see or what they might like to do in the future. Now, now those two interact because mm. I could predict who's most likely to be influenced by my fake news feed. Um, but that's really use that that's sort of like the, you know, the car for the bank robbery scenario. We should really focus on the bank robbery. We should really mm. focus on the fake information. And it has very different remedies than focusing on the predictive data that might be used to deliver it more effectively or more harmfully. Um, mm. But th those are really two, two separate things. Yeah, I agree. So, but, th but there's also sort of policy questions here. So for instance, I can take electronic medical records of people and I can predict who is going to progress into hypertension, type 2 diabetes, COPD, and CHF. If insurance companies uh, look at the data and change their insurance policies, that's not uh, that's not the world we want to be in, right? So, um, prediction could could have a downside in many ways. Absolutely. So, prediction can undermine insurance in many different realms, in health insurance, uh, in you know, if we can predict whose house is more likely to burn down, we should give them higher, you know, priced fire insurance anywhere where you buy insurance. So 
I mean, we could have government come in and say, you're not allowed to undermine pooling in that way. And you're effectively forcing a cross-subsidization from yeah. low-risk people to high-risk people. But that is the nature of insurance, right? Yeah. So maybe we just decide as a society that we want to pool that risk. Hmm. Um, you know, that could happen in the form of the, you know, government actually providing the high-risk people with some insurance options, or it could just be regulation about what an insurance company is is allowed to condition on. Um, the allowing to condition on is tricky because I can remove a variable from a data set um, and a machine learning algorithm will be very adept at figuring out what else might serve that role. So this comes up in the context of racial bias all the time. There, there are companies who say, well, we've made these predictions about say, who will default on a loan and they're racially unbiased because we didn't put race in our data set. Well, you know, no, it's not, right? Because there are a bunch of good proxies for race. There's zip code and, you know, maybe education is correlated with that. Or, you know, maybe, I don't know, a bunch of other things that you, products that would be more favored by some than others. And that algorithm is going to basically exactly construct just about the same predictions. Um and so just saying you can't condition on a piece of data like race or, or health outcome or something might not be enough. We might need stronger statistical techniques yeah. to actually ensure that the predictions that come out are independent of uh, the characteristics that, that, that we want to we, we want to we want to ensure against that we want to pool that we want to make sure are not discriminated against. Yeah, we definitely need strong statistical technique. There was an insurance company in New York who predicted African-Americans don't need as much care as others uh, based on historical data. So the, the downside of machine learning based on a large amounts of data is that it, it is sort of accumulating biases in historical data. And um, that is not necessarily a good thing, right? I mean, we have seen a lot of issues with that. So I don't know. It, it, yeah. I'm sort of conflicted about this, Laura. I'm a data guy, but I know data, but I'm yeah. not sure if you're heading the right direction here. Um, that's a problem that we that there are solutions to, but we have to ensure that they're adopted. Right? If if you can purge your data before you put it in a machine learning algorithm, so that your data is independent of the characteristics that you want to protect, you want to pool, you want to not discriminate on, then any machine learning algorithm will produce predictions that are independent. Yeah. Um, that, you know, that, the, that's sort of the statistical nature of independence. So yeah. that can be done. Um, but we have to enforce, we have to develop standards for doing that, uh, you know, and enforce them and, you know, verify and have ways of checking to make sure that it's done. But it's not, it, it doesn't, we don't have to throw out machine learning and artificial intelligence, oh, sure, yeah. but we do have to develop best practices for using them in a way that don't hurt people. Yeah, we, we have to do our best practices, but I, I fear that regulations are going to get in here and say, you shouldn't do this and you shouldn't do that. That's mm -hmm. never going to work out, right? So we are sort of a critical juncture in some ways, right? So, I mean, we can see some bad effects. We can see a lot of good effects. Of data, mm -hmm. but we see some bad effects. Mm -hmm. 
And then you say, you know, the policymakers are going to look at the bad effects and come down with a sledgehammer <laughs> to kill the industry. Uh, that's what I fear. Yeah. I think we have to look at history and think of this as this is sort of like the Industrial Revolution. You know? Yeah, yeah. Did industry have bad effects? Sure. It created polluted cities and, you know, there was there were people who lost their lives because they didn't have safe workplaces. All kinds of terrible things happened along with the Industrial Revolution. Would we want to go back to a pre-industrialized society? <laughs> Absolutely not. Right? Yeah. So the, the trick is to, you know, not throw the baby out with bathwater. It's to, to hold on to what's useful about these new technologies and try to address the harms specifically without yeah. cross casting too, too broad a net. Excellent. Excellent, Laura. Thanks so much for spending time with me. Thank you. Enjoy the conversation.